he literally wrote the paper on bears breaking into minivans in Yosemite. Uh, it's like 1,100 break-ins over the duration of the study. <laughs> I talked to Stuart just a few weeks ago. He said, you won't believe this. A bear broke into our car. <laughs> he said, I left a peach in the car. Me, of all people. I left a peach in the car. Bear broke in, ransacked the car, got the peach. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire. Stop me if you've heard this one. A bear walks into a bar. You might think this is the beginning of a joke. And it could be, though I admit I do not know the punchline, but it's also reality for people who live in environments where bears really can and do saunter into houses, bars, and wherever else they please. They are, after all, bears. It is very hard to tell them no. So what do we do when an animal breaks and enters, or takes down a plane, or commits cold-blooded murder? Now, we call Mary Roach, science writer and author of the famous books Stiff, The Curious Lives of Human Cadavers, and Gulp, Adventures on the Alimentary Canal. She now comes to us with Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law. Mary, thank you so much for being here with us. Oh, my pleasure. So first, I wanted to ask, why is it called Fuzz? Because many of the creatures in it are indeed fuzzy, but a lot of them aren't, like there are birds and plants. And I was wondering why why you settled on this particular title. Uh, well, fuzz has two meanings. Fuzz as in fuzzy animal. And granted, there are some non-fuzzy creatures in the book. Uh, but also fuzz as in slang for police. So it's a combination of the crime world and the animal world. It suggests both. So, But the other reason is that uh, the title we were going to have, Animal, Vegetable, Criminal, we had to change that because uh, in February, Mark Bittman published a book about food, the history of food, called Animal, Vegetable, Junk. So at the last minute, uh, my publisher wanted to change the title, so it didn't appear that I had copied or been inspired by Mark Bittman in any way, which I wasn't, but there you go. <laughs> this is how we ended up with Fuzz. Well, in, in my heart, it is still called Animal, Vegetable, Criminal, um, because that's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. A, it, it, I kind of wrote the book around that title. That's mm. why there are, are uh, there's a chapter on killer beans, <laughs> because my editor wanted more vegetable material. Mary, we don't have enough vegetables in here. <laughs> And I did wonder, you know, for many authors, there's kind of a line that can be drawn between one book and the next, like a piece of research that you glean while researching becomes your next obsession. And I was wondering, was there a piece of research in one of your previous books, such as Grunt or Packing for Mars, that kind of took you off on this animal adventure? Uh, no, there wasn't. That has happened to me. Uh, there was something in Stiff that led to Spook. And uh, there was something in one book, a footnote that led to Packing for Mars, or, you know, kind of sparked an interest. But this time, no, 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 that was, there was nothing. I had never reported on this issue uh, at all. Uh, so no, no, no connections from a previous book. I, you know, I choose, for the most part, I, I come to my book topics after a period of blind groping and random flailing and asking everybody I meet what they do and what they think I should write about. And <laughs> so uh, I wish it, I wish it were that tidy. So how did you end up kind of 
coming to or flailing around and accidentally slapping into the concept of human animal <laughs> conflict. I uh, I stumbled onto a paper. Actually, it wasn't a paper. It was it's a guide for wildlife law enforcement professionals called "How to Tell uh, Real versus Counterfeit Tiger Penis." And this is something that people who uh, work in law enforcement and uh, <clears throat> in the area of illegal trafficking of endangered species, uh, they, they, they need to be able to identify animal material and plant, but animal material uh, based on you know, what it looks like. Sometimes the, the hairs or the, I mean, there, there's uh, a whole field of research uh, forensics that uh, has to do with identifying these uh, strange materials that are sometimes confiscated. Anyway, I thought that was kind of an interesting area of expertise, and I wanted to meet this woman. So uh, I did meet her up at the National Wildlife Forensics Laboratory up in Ashland, Oregon. And uh, while I was there, though, because uh, I thought maybe, I don't know, maybe there's, I could build a, a book. I don't know what book it would be, but maybe there's some book that would contain this. I sort of start with a piece and try to work out sometimes. You know, kind of like, did you ever see the ad for Kohler? You know, they do like bathroom fixtures and there's this ad where the guy walks into an architect's office and plunks down this really pretentious faucet and says, build a house around this. <laughs> so I'm kind of like the guy with the pretentious faucet. I like find one nugget and I think, well, this is kind of you know, interesting. What world, what world exists around this thing that I've stumbled onto and, and could I turn it into a book? Uh, but as it turns out, you can't, uh, for legal reasons, you can't tag along with investigators. Uh, you know, I was envisioning, I want to find the little room in some back room in, in, in Bangkok where there's sort of a sweatshop with people taking horse or dog or uh, cow or deer penis, which is usually what it is, and carving barbs into it because the cats have barbs on the penis. So like trying to take the one penis and turn it into another, like that this is their job and that kind of appealed to me. And he's like, no, 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 you can't, that's not going to work. So uh, on my way back to the drawing table, I kind of thought, well, uh, you know, what else is in this world? I kind of turned it inside out and thought, well, what about wildlife as the perpetrators rather than the victims? So and initially I thought to include both somehow, but then it just seemed cleaner to just do break it down by start with the felonies, murder, manslaughter, home invasion, and move on to the misdemeanors, trespassing, littering, jaywalking. So it seemed to be a structure that worked. And uh, I thought, okay, that, that'll be the book. So very roundabout. There was also a detour uh, up the alley into uh, agricultural crime. I got interested in that because I read about how before the Super Bowl every year, there's a spike in uh, avocado theft. And, and the amounts are large enough that it qualifies as grand theft avocado. So that was <laughs> that, that is the most kind of hipster appealing. grand larceny I have ever. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So uh, and I kind of I thought, oh, I don't know, maybe that I was sort of trying to mush these things all together. 
and it wasn't working. Also, agricultural crime is something that's investigated by sheriff's departments, and they didn't want to play. They didn't want to. They're like, what do you want? No, they're just not having it. So, and it, most agricultural crime is not that interesting. Some of it is, but a lot of it is. Well, people have a huge plot of land, a large farm, and they leave equipment out in the field sometimes, and it gets stolen. It's like, that's that's just not that, really that scintillating. So I dropped that, and I dropped the wildlife, uh, you know, endangered species forensics, and then landed with human-wildlife conflict, which was a science that I had no idea existed. So I, I, I get kind of excited when I stumble into a corner of science that I didn't know existed. You know, there's whole textbooks on human wildlife conflict. There's people whose job titles are human elephant conflict researcher <laughs> or specialist. You know, there's that's kind of thrilling for me when I find a little pocket of science I hadn't known existed. Well, I have to say I am slightly sad because there is nothing worse uh, than an illegally trafficked tiger penis, unless it is a fake illegally trafficked tiger penis. <laughs> and you know what? They're almost always fake. And here's why. I know you didn't expect to be talking about tiger penis, but I'm just, I got to follow through. No, please. Absolutely. Here's the deal. A tiger penis, a t- despite its reputation for power and virility, which is why the it is chosen as the animal whose penis is given medicinally to someone who wants to boost their virility or potency. Uh, the tiger has a very small penis. It's kind of like the dried tiger penis is about the size of a tiger claw. It's very, I mean, I haven't seen it engorged. It could be the tiger is a grower, not a shower. I don't know. But I saw a whole uh, range of dried tiger penises that when I was up at the lab, and it is a very small organ. So... Uh, deer, horse, cow, uh, often are used instead because they're more, shall we say, inspiring, but they have to be uh, made to look like tiger by cutting, carving the little barbs into the penis, uh, the deer penis or the horse or the cow, whatever they're using. So, uh, thankfully, because tigers are endangered, it is very rarely a real tiger penis. I and in kind fact, of assumed of the that the pe- reason was because it's really hard to get a tiger and it's much easier to, like, kill a deer. <laughs> uh, that as well. Yeah, that is true. That is a, But that doesn't stop uh, people from going out and getting endangered species that um, are hard to get. Uh, uh, I guess it just has to do with they've been doing it so long that people have come to actually think that is what a tiger penis looks like. Like, they get away <laughs> with it. The poor tigers, they're just like the media has absolutely sold us, you know, these incorrect (laughs) sexual expectations. Exactly. I know. Yeah. And the the, the researcher, Bonnie Yates, she's since retired. She said she was in Chinatown in San Francisco and uh, talking to, I'm not sure who they were talking to, someone in the um, context of this investigation. And she said, you know, this is this is cow. You know, you're basically, it's basically a $250 bowl of beef broth. And they're like, we know. We call it lesser tiger penis. We know. People know. <laughs> it's like, whoa. I can't even, I can't even begin to figure that one out. The but little known is, is lesser really tiger yeah. penis. <laughs> the lesser, lesser tiger penis. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the reason you, you've never heard of it before is because lesser tigers are very secretive. You see. 
Very stealthy. Incredibly stealthy. Yep. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> little tiny, little tiny guys. <laughs> so yeah, I did want to ask, you know, you mentioned that, unfortunately, the tiger penis bit did not make it into the book, for which we are all dreadfully sad, but also so happy that you just told it to us. Um, but also, you know, you mentioned there are so many stories out there of human animal conflict in which animals are doing things that humans do not enjoy. Yes. Um, and I was kind of wondering, you know, it is a whole vast field. <laughs> you know, there are people who, you know, are human elephant conflict managers. There are people who do integrated pest management. There are, you know, human lion conflict managers. And, and I was wondering, how did you end up kind of picking which the ones that you did to focus on? Why did you end up focusing on things like, for example, bear maulings and, you know, elephants and monkeys? Um, what kind of drew you to those particular versions of animal lawbreaking? Well, I knew that you were working on a book and I intuited the things that you would not be writing about so that there would not be overlap between the two books. So kind. So I did it. I did it for you. <laughs> no, I'll take I, that lie. I'll take it. <laughs> I, a lot of it for me has to do with uh, who is doing who's going to be doing something in the near future the next year or two um, where I can go and be a part of it be on the scene and and kind of I, I'm just envisioning what will the chapter narrative look like so that is that is definitely part of it I did want to have um, a, you know a mix of crimes and a mix of creatures but it it uh, was fairly you know I I had certain animals in there that got dropped. You know, I was thinking, I thought there was going to be a Canada goose chapter. I wanted to get trained as an egg addler, but nobody's addling eggs anymore. Yeah. Uh, I, I wanted, there were, there just, there were uh, a number of things that didn't pan out in terms of the narrative I had envisioned. So it comes down to just what seems to work out and the timing is right. And it, um, seems like it will be interesting for readers. I didn't really have, I mean, I couldn't do a comprehensive book. It's not even remotely close to comprehensive. Uh, I, I, I wanted to, you know, not to be repetitive to try to highlight different aspects of this field. And it is a huge field. There's so many places you could go with it. There's so much you could do with it. Um, so it's a little bit random in the end. Um, uh, and then of course, my editor's feedback, which is more vegetables, please, because of the title that we no longer have. <laughs> we, so, and then, they, and then when we change the title, I'm like, do we have to take the beans out now? Just leave the beans in. Go ahead, leave the beans in. <laughs> I mean, it's always so, good to have more fiber. It's good to have more fiber. Every book needs more fiber. Yes. <laughs> um, for those of you following along at home, egg addling is a thing that people used to do to try and prevent geese in particular, but other birds in general from reproducing. So you find the nest once they've laid eggs, and then you take the eggs and basically shake them. And if you shake them hard enough, the yolk breaks. And so the egg does not actually develop and then hatch into a, a small bird. Um, so it's that's goose, it's, basically it's the concept. Goose, goose abortion. Yeah. What goose I abortion. loved... It's goose abortion. But what was fascinating to me, uh, and what kind of got me interested in this was this 
uh, I came across this woman who had uh, worked, I think she was working, well, she was like with Michigan Natural Resources, but she, but she also worked with someone from Humane Society of the United States. And they were, they did this big project to figure out um, at, at what point is it humane, you know, kind of like the debate on human abortion, at what point can you still do this? You know, at what point is the fetus, can you say fetus for a bird? Bird fetus? Uh, hey, yes. Embryo? Anyway, the little bird. <laughs> the little bird. At what point is it cruel to do this? So they, and they figured out, you know, when there's more air and less goose, it floats. So so there are people out with, you know, with, a, first of all, they have a, a bucket of water for putting the eggs in to see if they float, meaning they're young enough to be addled. But they would also carry an umbrella because they would, you know, it was one of those press and shoot open umbrellas, which would scare away the angry geese that were not thrilled that you were messing with their nest. So there's these people with, you know, with buckets of water and umbrellas walking around in the brush and municipal park areas. So it, it kind of appealed to my sense of um, bizarreness, I guess. It, it definitely, but it seems it very a, much like a, like a Mary sort of section. It, uh, yeah. And I just wanted, you know, I thought it'd be fun to be a licensed egg addler to put that be able to put that on my resume and business, but they cards. don't. They don't. It, it, it's a lot of training and a lot of time, and it doesn't. Um, uh, it takes a, I guess, a, quite a while before the effects. You know, in terms of a lower population, it's just not very. I think they now remove nests, maybe more than that. But anyway, I dropped the Canada geese, so I, I have. A, I have a big fat Canada goose chapter. Sorry, folder that is not a chapter in the book. And I, I have plenty of those folders. So yeah, it, in the end, it was a. Uh, yes, it's just a kind of a rotation of, of stuff that I thought I was going to do. And then I yanked it out and then I put something else in. So kind of a ever evolving collection and, of things. But you do end up kind of, you know, as you mentioned, starting with kind of the felonies, the murder, the breaking and entering, etc. And then you kind of move down to things like straight up theft. And then, um, yes. you know, down to kind of the more of the misdemeanors. Um and so you start, of course, with animal murder, which you went to school for, because of course you did. Um, and I was wondering if you can talk about what these cases look like, and also why they tend to happen. Um, because it was it was really fascinating to kind of hear the differences, like you see a mauled human body. Is it an animal? Or is it a human pretending to be an animal? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, the first order of business. Uh, and it, I should say it was uh, the, the training was called uh, Human Wildlife Attack Response Training. It was a five-day class, mostly people who work for wildlife agencies. Canadian, a lot of them from Canada, because there's a whole lot of bears up there, and uh, cougars as well, uh, and some from down here, most, mostly in the west, uh, western United States. Uh, it was held in Reno, but it was taught by a group of um, Conservation Corps officers from British Columbia. So uh, the training was part classroom, but part, uh, la- uh si- simulations. So uh, we were dealing with a, uh, crime scene as, as it were. Um, uh, so that would be something blocked off with yellow tape, just as though it were a human having killed a human. And the order of business was, uh, for, yeah, first of all, uh, knowing what we learned in the classroom using these, uh, soft touch mannequins that had been 
uh, doctored to look like actual victims of maulings. Um, we learned to be able to tell a, a bear attack victim from a cougar attack victim for, uh, from a human victim. Uh, because, yeah, as you said, sometimes uh, sometimes it's hard to tell, particularly with a mountain lion. Uh, there was a famous, well, famous in those circles, case of a guy who was found killed on a trail with puncture marks to the neck. Well, a, a cougar, it's, it's telltale method of killing. It's to leap from behind and deliver a killing bite bite to the back of the neck. So there would be puncture wounds on the neck. And uh, whoever investigated the case decided this guy was killed by a cougar. And in fact, this guy was not killed by a cougar. He was killed by a man with an ice pick. And he got away with that murder. It was like 12 years later, he bragged about it to somebody while he was serving time for something else. So he finally was brought to justice on that killing. But uh, it was uh, a case of bad forensics work because there was no... uh, upper jaw, you know, tooth marks from the upper jaw and the lower jaw. It was just, you know, three marks. Um, They didn't look like uh, cougar teeth punctures. There were no, normally the cougar would grab with the claws to hold the person. There were, and those are very characteristic triangular puncture marks where the claws go in. There was none of that. Uh, It should have been fairly simple for anybody trained in this stuff to know that that was not a cougar. Uh, so anyway, that is, uh, and the the opposite also has occurred. Uh, the uh, the famous um, dingo ate my baby, Lindy Chamberlain. That was a case where she was uh, convicted of a crime that, in the end, it turned out to have actually been the dingo. And uh, so there, the, these mistakes happen, and the wrong person or animal is punished. So it's kind of important to to get it right. And once you know the species, then. Um, there's an effort to make sure that you have the right individual, as you would in a human crime, you know, a human killing. That is to say, a human killing another human. Uh, the, there's, uh, if you trap an animal on the scene, or you see an animal on the scene and you shoot it, you being the agency uh, employee, um, you would then need to check the, you know, the DNA uh, of the victim to see if it matches the animal, and and if not, you let the animal go. And that's how there was a case up in rural, uh, I think Saskatchewan, maybe anyway, Canada, where there are a lot, this woman lived in an area with a lot of bears and was killed. And they set a trap, like a culvert trap. And the first two bears that they caught weren't a match. And so they were, the suspect was released because there was no evidence linking that bear to the crime. They did eventually find the bear whose DNA matched the woman's well, the and main takeaway for me, actually, from that chapter was if you are going to do a murder and frame an animal for it, make sure that the bite wounds on the neck match on either side. Do not forget the upper jaw. <laughs> yes, that is correct. There has to be pressure and counter pressure. Yes, indeed. Um, yep. I was going to say, do people start, you know, looking at you funny when you come back with all of this information? <laughs> um. I don't talk about it much. I'm very paranoid when I'm working on a book that, uh, I, you know, if I talk about where I've been, that somebody's going to do a short piece that kind of scoops me, you know? Mm. So I don't, I, no, people don't because I don't say much. <laughs> I'm pretty, I'm pretty squirrely about uh, what I'm doing when I'm working on a book. 
I'm, I, I don't even like to tell people what they're about. Also, because my books are impossible to, you know, if I said I'm writing a book about human wildlife conflict, people go, oh, God, that sounds like a snooze. You know, it, it, it is hard to sum up my what I'm doing. You know that. You know how that is. It's really hard to sum up in a sentence for somebody who is maybe not that interested anyway. Sure. It's very hard. It's hard to get across what you're doing because it's so complicated and there's so many moving parts and so much in there that, you you know, you'll have two sentences to say what it's about. Well, so, I don't know about you, but if I had that kind of training, I would start looking at the backs of people's necks and being like, you know. The puncture marks should be like this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That was like when I wrote Stiff and I I went to this lab where they were working on heads. <clears throat> it was a plastic reconstructive surgery session. And I re- distinctly remember flying home from, I think it was in Texas, flying home and looking around at the people on the plane and thinking, I know what you look like as just a head. It's <laughs> 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 just kind of this I don't really want to think that way, but I don't know, it stays with you. So yeah, I have, and I have those images from the, you know, the mannequins with the, you know, missing lips and eyes and, you know, cause the bears, they go for the face because that's what they do with each other if they're fighting. So there's some pretty uh, grisly mannequins in that room. And it was hilarious because as hilarious as that could be, we were in a casino and they were playing, there was a big bingo game in the next room and the bingo players would walk down the hall to use the restrooms and kind of look in. And there's these lifelike naked people with these hideous injuries on tables. <laughs> uh, and I, none of them asked what we were doing or what was going on. They just kind of glanced in and kept going. <laughs> <laughs> that I, that tells you a great deal about, I guess, the people who play bingo. Sorry to anybody who plays bingo. <laughs> <laughs> it does, yeah. Now, most of the training that you did focused on kind of North American um, animals, so bear, wolves, mountain lions. Um, but you know, you also noted that in countries like India, the bigger danger is elephants, and this might come as a surprise for people. We're used to seeing elephants as sweet and smart and and wise and writable. And I was wondering if you could talk about why humans and elephants come into conflict there. Yeah, sure. They're, they're uh, obviously not, uh, elephants are not, you know, they're not preying on us as a food source, obviously. They're vegetarians. But they, um, they move through the north of India along this, they call it the elephant corridor. And they uh, of late, over the years, uh, as uh, human civilization has encroached, they've tended to kind of get stuck. The, the, the places they used to go, there's either a freeway or a military base or a refugee settlement. Uh, they, they, their, their ability to do what they've done for centuries has been um, ch- has changed. So they get stuck and they run out of food and they tend to raid farmers' fields. And that doesn't go down well with farmers, as these are subsistence farmers, many of them. This is their livelihood and their survival. <clears throat> so they see elephants come in, and elephants are social animals. They travel in groups. Uh, and to see eight element elephants kind of heading into your f- crops, uh, they, they get upset, and it's nighttime. Often it's nighttime. So they'll, they'll if, if, you know, if, if they haven't, if it's not a village that has an elephant response t- team and that has been trained in what to do, they tend to run out with like fire and sticks and loud noises 
and the elephants kind of scatter, which makes them um, nervous, insecure, and defensive, and they will be running around in a panic. People will be running around in a panic, and as my mother liked to say, somebody's going to get hurt, and people are killed that way. Uh, and a surprisingly large number, 500 people a year in India. Not nearly as many as are killed by snakes, I should point out, but mm-hmm. uh, a lot, a lot, uh, especially compared to, you know, here in the United States, between one and three people per year are killed by a bear. So 500 is, I mean, it is a bigger population in India, obviously, but it's a lot of people. And for an animal that, yeah, you, I mean, I grew up with Babar and Dumbo and National Geographic. I just don't have that association with them. Uh, but it's very much a, you know, a conflict of, you know, it, there's, there's not enough land for everybody. And these elephants have nowhere to go. They get pocketed is the word. I like that term. A pocketed elephant, like you could put an elephant in a pocket. <laughs> uh, uh, so uh, and there, I traveled with a researcher from the Wildlife Institute of India who tries to help people put together elephant response teams. So these are people trained in how to uh, they, <clears throat> how to kind of encourage the animals off the farmland in a group, you know, kind of herding them as a group so they don't panic and don't start running around in five different directions. Um, but also, um, they're, they're trying to uh, deal with the human behavior as much as the animal behavior. You know, like definitely don't let anybody drunk run out into the field. Uh, I think something like, was it between 30 and 40% of fatal- fatalities, the person was drunk. There was a news headline while I was there about a man who ran out to try to stop a group of elephants. I think they were coming into the village. And the, the, the line was like, uh, he tried to confront them. Them was 18 elephants. And so that man died. Yeah. Yeah. A human does not I win mean, that you know, fight. No. No. I mean, an elephant's just like you just swat someone with your trunk, uh, knock them over. I mean, and then they're groups. So one elephant knocks you over and then another one steps on you and that's it. I mean, not even intentional, not necessarily intentional, just they're big animals and they are in groups and uh, it's a very dangerous place to be. I didn't, I didn't realize this when we first got to the area, we, the place we were staying was right near an elephant crossing. And after it got dark after dinner, I said, I'm going to go down to the elephant crossing. <laughs> and they're like, Mary, please be careful. And then they like look at each other and like, we're coming with you. They were very uncomfortable with it. We spent about 10 minutes hanging out near the elephant crossing. And then the researcher's assistant said, let's go back inside. Like, it, it's, it's, it, they, it, it's hard for me to internalize that. I still just think of them as these wonderful, majestic, big, beautiful, gentle animals. But they thought I was nuts. Well, and, you know, elephants aren't the only one, you know, there's a lot of um, kind of people have this cuddly, happy version of bears, this idea that, you know, yeah. bears are sweet, and they are, they can be, uh, just yes. not when they're mad at you or scared. Yes. <laughs> um, but right, it was, right. But it was very interesting, because you note that, you know, bears kill someone eh, one to three times a year in North America, and it makes the news. Um, but, you know, far more often, what bears do is breaking and entering. Um, and yes. so I loved that you went to Aspen and to see the results of this. <laughs> yeah. And 
I was wondering if, you know, this seems to be something kind of similar to what's happening with elephants. We're hearing more and more about bears ending up in places where people don't think they belong. And I was wondering if you could talk about why that's the case. Well, sure. I mean, Aspen, where I was, is a ski resort. So it's up in the mountains and it's, uh, the hillsides are covered with um, acorn bushes and choke cherry and serviceberry and crab apple trees. All of this is good eating for bears. So we moved into their land, their area, the place where they've got everything they need. So we move in and now we have houses and restaurants. So the bears are like, huh, I don't know. That stuff over there smells pretty good. That stuff in that big dumpster behind the restaurant, a big bag of food scraps, like sustainably ranched Saguna Bay salmon and burrata. And, you know, I mean, they're, it's very tempting for a bear. And, and although there are laws requiring people to secure, to, to have bear resistant containers and dumpsters, um, very often they're either not used properly or they're broken. Um, there are fines for people who, you know, don't follow these rules. But say you've got a dumpster that five restaurants are using, great big dumpster, five restaurants using it. Who's going to admit that they were the ones that didn't lock it? Uh, same with a condo development. You've got a big one, one trash receptacle for five or six units. How do you know, especially when a lot of the people coming to Aspen are vacation rentals, they're, they're people in vacation rentals, they're out of towners, they don't know the consequences of a bear becoming habituated to people and their food, a bear losing its wariness of people and starting to get more and more bold and more aggressive to the point where there may be an interaction that where somebody gets hurt. They don't, they're from out of town, they don't know, they don't care. Uh, and the, it's difficult to find the, the person the, the person who left it open because you don't know. There's five different people using that dumpster. Sometimes the waste management people, you know, they have to retrofit the trucks to be able to use a certain container, bear resistant container. They don't want to do that. There's something that should be so easy, like don't leave out attractants for bears. Keep the bears uh, up in the hills, you know, let them stay wild. Uh, it should be simple, but it's surprisingly complicated. Well, a lot of things that attract bears are not things that people would necessarily think of as bear attractants, right? Like yes. you think of bird seed in your bird feeder as a bird attractant, not right. a bear attractant. <laughs> yes, right, exactly. Or even even uh, the grill. If you're if you're grilling steaks, the the slatted, I guess it's the top of the grill, is covered with. Uh, dried grease and it's very fragrant so that's gonna that smell will attract a bear um it's just things that yeah you who would, i wouldn't have even thought of that except somebody mentioned it to me so yeah there's a lot of ways to mess up even the you know, the um the researcher that i traveled with a national wildlife research center um non-lethal specialist named Stuart breck he literally wrote the paper on bears breaking into minivans in Yosemite. Uh, it's like 1,100 break-ins over the duration of the study. <laughs> I talked to Stuart just a few weeks ago. He said, you won't believe this. A bear broke into our car. <laughs> he said, I left a peach in the car. Me, of all people, I left a peach in the car. Bear broke in, ransacked the car, got the peach. 
<laughs> That's amazing. So I know Stuart Breck, you know, he's like, you can tell people that it's okay. The irony is rich. It is. It does really highlight, though, how much a lot of the stuff you talk about in the book with human animal conflict is about issues of human behavior and trying to get people <laughs> to do things differently, which they really don't want to do. That's absolutely right. People, people love wildlife until it's in their garden or in their attic. And then they're like, I'll do anything to get rid of it. I don't want it here. What does it take? So yeah, it's uh, um, it's kind of an in, it's not an intractable problem, but it's a problem that uh, you know if, if people if people make the effort, there are ways to deal with these animals that are humane. There are people you can hire. There are humane wildlife control operators who actually do have humane methods. I have a uh, appendix in the book which has some resources, you know, how, like how to find a humane wildlife operator, you know, like somebody who knows how to remove a raccoon and it's young or a squirrel and it's young from an attic without separating the mother from the babies by plugging up the hole at the wrong time. There, there are methods and tools to do these things in a humane way or, uh, and even better to make your property a place that doesn't offer either food or housing. So there are ways you can prevent these things from happening, but you know, people want their fruit trees and they want their gardens and, and, so it's a constant battle of wits. Yeah, and also what I found was interesting was how often animals weren't doing problem behaviors until humans moved in, and then all of a sudden the animals were a problem. And one of the uh, examples that I find most fascinating and also kind of horrifying is Midway, um, the Midway Atoll. Yeah. And I was wondering if you could talk about the potentially killer albatross. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, it's called the second battle for Midway, and it really well, it went on longer than the first battle for Midway Island. Um, Midway Island, before the military, the U.S. military set up a base, uh, was and still is a, a, um, a nesting site for a number of different seabirds, Laysan albatross being uh, one of one of them. Huge numbers of albatross nest there. So the military came in and they were, uh, because it's, you know, the Mid Midway Island is halfway between here and Asia and Japan. So it seemed like a good place to be uh, fueling up and launching flights from. Uh, so they built this, these airstrips and there were albatross all around and they thought, well, these loud noises, I mean, I'm sure they won't stick around. Well, they stuck around and the military tried uh, pretty much everything they had in their arsenal. They tried, they were like, mortars, rifles, burning tires, sonar, radar, uh, uh, actually hand-to-hand -hand combat was the worst. Uh, they tried all of this. Um, they tried something called, um, I think it was large-scale elimination experiment, which was pretty grisly, and I think killed, well, there were tens of thousands of albatross killed. And it made no difference. And the, 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 very quickly, the same. They were the same number. They were you know, the next season. The same number of birds were nesting, and the birds seemed to not mind at all. These huge planes taking off. They're just like, huh? They're, the albatross is a very unflappable bird. If you can use the word unflappable with birds, I don't know. But anyway, they, they you know, they'd just be like, huh? We seem to be sharing our airspace with this large metal bird. Oh well, that's okay. So 
Um, anyway, it was a kind of a I kind of like the ending of this story, which is that the base is closed and the albatross remain, and the National Wildlife Service is doing habitat restoration and a kind of quiet atoning for things that went on earlier. They were involved in some of the large-scale elimination experiments. Um, so, yeah, uh, kind of an astounding. I also wondered why, you know, the albatross, you know, the, you, you didn't just take change the schedule so that the planes were taking off when the albatross were asleep. Obviously, they wouldn't sleep very well, but it doesn't seem to bother them. So it, that was like, why didn't they try that? I guess they probably had their reasons for some whatever flight scheduling reasons. They couldn't do that because they, what they were worried about ultimately was um, strikes between, you know, bird strike, like albatross getting sucked into the engine and causing the plane to crash and killing everyone on board. That's why they wanted to get rid of them, which I didn't mention up front. Um, but that that was the concern. So I thought, you know, maybe you should have just tried having the planes take off at night. But that would inconvenience the humans, Mary. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, I forgot about them. <laughs> <laughs> but I actually, you mentioned bird strikes was what they were worried about, was that the albatrosses might get sucked into a jet engine yes. um, and then bring down. And I was wondering, you know, much was made of this in the buildup to this attempt to get rid of the albatrosses. Did that actually happen? Like, did albatrosses actually bring down planes? No plane was ever brought down and no one ever died except the albatrosses. They were, bir they, birds were hit. They, mm -hmm. they would hit birds. But, uh, as far as I know, no, no, no one was killed. No airmen were killed and no planes went down, I believe. And there were a lot of albatross there. And it's also especially ironic to me that the military went to all this effort to kill albatrosses and now they're trying to restore albatross habitat and I believe it is on the island of Midway where invasive mice are causing yeah. real devastation to albatross because yeah albatross are so unflappable as to be considered almost comatose they just yes they know oh my god they just don't move have you seen the, yeah. the videos of the mice and the mice come in the night and they scalp them basically they eat they, they basically start eating at, eating at them. Yes. Um, yeah, I think there's a, a plan afoot to, to get rid of the mice. So first we tried to get rid of the albatross, and now we're going to try to probably mass poison all of the mice. Um, yeah, I'm not sure what their approach is going to be. But yeah, it's just it, kind it might, of ironic. Yeah, anyway, I, yeah. probably. It'd probably be a, an aerial poison drop because it's a small island. Yeah, that's probably what they'll do. But the um, the mice, yeah, the the mice are. Um, I think that they got rid of earlier. They may I may have this wrong, but I think they did a they got rid of rats at mm -hmm. some point, and mm -hmm. so that's why the mouse population spiked because the rats used to kill them mice. Mm -hmm. You just can never get it straight. Um, yeah, and I kind of wanted to like follow up on that and we're talking well now that we're talking about ma mass killing of rodents um <laughs> as one does uh i wanted i really appreciated the part in your book where you talk about poisons and other kill mechanisms and yeah. how people are trying to develop kind of more humane methods to do things um like kill yeah. rats and stoats um in places like new zealand um and it does seem ironic to put killing and humane together 
Um, yeah. But I, I was wondering kind of what, what kind of things are they trying and what are kind of their measures of what humane sure. means? Sure. Um, I spent some time with a man named Bruce Warburton. And the thing that uh, he's doing, because I should say New Zealand uh, has decided as a country and as a culture that they want to be rid of the three main invasive species that are killing their flightless birds, their, their unique fauna, their flightless birds and their reptiles, a lot of reptile species, which are being driven extinct uh, by three, those three introduced species, rats, stoats, and possums. So they have a plan to uh, exterminate them, essentially. That is the plan. And so what Bruce Warburton is working on is trying to find more humane ways to kill them. And uh, sometimes it's a form of trap. For example, a trap where a stoat would put its head into a narrow tube to get at bait, and it would be positioned precisely in the spot where this CO2-fired metal rod would hit the skull, causing instant death, which sounds barbaric, but it's instant. And that's how humaneness is determined, how quickly and painlessly are you delivering death. Um, And that's some of the, I mean, it's a really tough job testing these traps. As you can imagine, doing the, you know, and the way that we, the way that we measure humaneness, the way that they measure humaneness is time to unconsciousness. So the time, how long does it take before the animal is physiologically completely unaware of pain of anything? So not, not necessarily to time to death, but time to unconsciousness. So that's how that is measured. They look at, um, the, Blink reflex, they'll actually go in and sort of tap the side of the eye to see when that reflex is gone and it's got a timer going. So that, that's a, that's a branch of research I, I wasn't familiar with and that, as you can imagine, the turnover is pretty high. Of the rats or of the people? Uh, the people. Also the rats. Well, the turnover of the, <laughs> yeah, the turnover of the, the animals as well. Sorry, that was, that sure. was not tasteful. That was, sorry. No, no. <laughs> Um, so um, I did. I, so oh, I did want to ask you. You were talking yeah. about kind of humane, more humane methods of trying to get rid of animals that we hate. And I know you did talk to someone at the Vatican um, about like the ethics of killing rats and like how does the Pope feel <laughs> about trapping rats, you know, within Vatican City? Um, and I, I was kind of wondering what did they end up kind of saying to you with regard to the like killing pests <laughs> well uh, the current pope um is a saint francis guy so he's you know saint francis was a friend to the animals a friend to the poor so saint francis was kind of this benevolent earth loving kind of the og animal activist so um i was curious whether because I was there anyway, I was in, I was at the Vatican anyway for another reason, another chapter. So I thought while I'm here, I mean, I, in the back of my mind, I'm like maybe I could get an audience with the Pope. Well, duh, no. But I did manage to speak to somebody at the Pontifical Academy for Life. Uh, this is the, the pest control is not something that the Vatican typically weighs in on. They were very patient with me. I'll say that. 
<laughs> I mean, we don't need to go into that. The conversation was kind of hilarious because I'm sure that Father Cazzo, Carlo Casalone really was hoping that I'd go away soon because it was, um, I mean, he actually had, he had very wise answers. Uh, he, he, he was a very thoughtful man and he seemed like a very fair man. He, he didn't have the solution, uh, but had some interesting thoughts, but we can let people discover those when they read it. I was also wondering, did you talk to any other ethicists um, about kind of how we deal with, with human animal conflict conflict? Um, I no, I didn't speak to any ethicists. No. Was no. there any reason you didn't do that? Because I'm more interested in kind of the science and solutions that, you know, it was a book about human wildlife conflict. And I, I mean, I think anybody in that field grapples with those matters anyway. So it's sort of everybody that I spoke to had to weigh those issues in their own mind. So I didn't really know. But I know that, you know, there are scientists also trying to find ways to, for example, get rid of rats without actually directly killing rats. And the popular, the thing that's very popular in, you know, science journalism press right now is gene drives. And the yes. idea is that special altered mice would be released, they mate with the problem mice, and then all the mice that result from that are infertile. And so eventually the population just kind of dies out, which is the concept. Yeah. Or that they only give birth to males. Right. In it. Yeah. Um, but I was really struck by, it was actually just a, I think one or two lines in your book where you note that the public are actually more comfortable with poison than they are with gene drives. And I wondered if you could talk about why. Yeah, that was a, well, it was actually a, a different technology, but it doesn't matter. I think the same is true for gene drives. It was, um, interfering RNA, which oh, is right, a sorry. whole other thing, but I, I think the same probably holds true for gene drives. Um, I, I, yeah, any, any time you're talking about genetically modifying nature, if you will, there's just a lot of resistance because it's, it's new and it seems scary and it has the word Frankenstein, Frankenstein attached to it. Uh, and, and, and pest control, extermination, poisoning, glue traps. It's something people, it's been around forever and people have this kind of, familiarity with it it's like it's almost just accepted just because it's been here so long and and it's not new and unknown and scary is the only way i can explain it um but i also was kind of very interested by a bunch of the stories in your book because so much of human animal crime quote unquote crime because it's not really crime per se um is is about animals that just kind of ended up in the wrong place at the wrong time. You sure. know, in some cases, that's bears who happen to live in an area that is now a popular ski resort. Um, but this is especially true for deer, which just happen to end up in the road when you're driving at them. And I love what you learned about how deer and other animals perceive traffic. This blew my mind. And I was wondering if you could talk about how deer perceive speed. <laughs> Yeah, that was fascinating. I spent time with this researcher, Travis DeVault, from the National Wildlife Research Center. He's no longer there, but uh, he was working on basically the deer in the headlights problem, which is a deer wanders into the road, a car is at night, a car is coming along, 
and all the deer sees really is the, or anybody really at night if it's dark it's not well lit um, back country back roads you see these two pinpoints of light and the way that we and deer perceive speed is that the object coming closer gets larger and the, the faster it gets larger the faster the thing is coming towards you and animals have this amazing ability to intuit how close can that predator usually get to me before I really need to take off so if an animal has got something delicious to eat it's going to wait till the last possible second uh, and it's actually called flight initiation distance like how close can you get before that bird will fly away uh, so uh, at night these he headlights, they're not looming like this. Is, it's called looming. You know, something coming closer appears to be bigger. And so a deer is kind of looking at these two pinpoints of light going, yeah, huh. There's a couple of pinpoints. Of, huh. I don't know what that is. Boom. Because it doesn't, it doesn't see the car getting bigger. So one thing you can do, um, what they were testing when I was there was a, a, a long row of a, a, a light rig that illuminates the grill of the car. So now you can see, okay, this is a vehicle. This is a large thing getting larger as it comes closer. Did it work? And will that be a thing that people can buy? <laughs> it did work. It did help. It did help. And it is patented now. And uh, because he did the work at the NWRC, uh, they're looking for a partner to develop it. So uh, I don't think they have a partner yet, but I would imagine that's that's going to happen. And uh, I think it's terrific, especially if you you know you live in parts of the country where there's there are deer and uh, other large big ungulates, yeah. large ungulates, and the taller they are, the more dangerous they are to hit. Never hit a moose. Never hit a moose. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it's I think it's something like two million people are involved in uh, ungulate vehicle collisions every yeah. year. Yeah. So yeah, it's, no, there's a market. Deer, deer indirectly killing way more people than bears or cougars. And yet no, that's and, never and, what and, we worry about. It's right. I know. And it's, it's, it's um, very often not the impact, but the fact that somebody is swerving to avoid hitting the deer and then running off the road and hitting a tree or something. So it's often, um, not the impact with the deer itself. Yeah. Um, so I did want to ask, you know, your books are always a kind of buffet of fun, bizarre stories, <laughs> um, but they also all kind of hone in on a central point. And so I wonder what do you people, what do you want people to really take away from kind of all of these stories of animals that are breaking laws that humans have set up? <laughs> Uh, I, I think um, I would just want people to, I mean, I don't, I don't like the word pest. I mean, I like the word pest. It's kind of a fun word. It's a good book title, but I, but, don't the, say. <laughs> <laughs> but it's um, uh, when we refer to animals as pests or nuisance animals, it just puts them in the context of what we do and what we want to do freely. Uh, so, uh, and it gives us permission to call the exterminator. It's a pest. It's not an animal. It's a pest. It, it gives us per, a, a license that I don't think we deserve. Really, I think I think we're too quick 
we just generally speaking about humans are are too quick to just call somebody in to deal with it, just make it go away rather than, well, okay, what could I, how can I change my environment? Maybe I don't have to have a cat door. Maybe my cat can stay indoors at night. So the raccoon doesn't come in and eat the cat food. And I don't have to call somebody to take the raccoon away and do whatever they're going to do with the raccoon. So I just would hope that people try to explore ways to prevent these conflicts from happening in their own lives and their own property before they just call in an outsider to deal with it. Well, have you changed anything about kind of the way you work after having worked on this book? The way I work? You mean the way I deal with animals? Yeah, the way you, yeah, you know, bird seed. Well, um, (laughs) I'm, I'm definitely always advocating for, I'm always the one in our home saying, so what? Like my husband will say, there's some animal that's dug this den in the backyard. It's either a skunk or a raccoon or a possum. I don't know. Who knows? Uh, and I'll say, so what? He's got a den. He lives in the den. He leaves. He goes out and does something. He's not bothering us. Like, you know, my husband wants to go fill the hole. It's like, why? That just means now he's maybe he'll want to live in the basement. So I don't know. So what? It's lovely to have a possum, a skunk, and a raccoon, which we do regularly have those. I love to set up the wildlife camera and see who's roaming around at what hours of the night. So um, it's just, I mean, I've, I've, I've always been a bit of a softy, I think, for, I'm the, I'm the person who always takes the spider outside and not, I can't, I can't step on a spider. You know, a spider, I don't know. I don't know what it's like to be a spider I think that that creature enjoys its little spider life. Who am I? Who am I to end it? I don't know. So so I'm just, um, I haven't changed profoundly in how I deal with the natural world around me, but I take a lot more joy in sort of observing them. and, And I'm more annoying to people because I'm all saying, okay, so you have, there's roof rats that come and go, especially when you have fruit on your trees. So what? They're going to eat the fruit when it falls to the ground. Big deal. Well, Mary, thank you so much for being here and for another scientific and entertaining ride. And here's to science journalists becoming more annoying over time. (laughs) Here, here. Thank you, Bethany. It was so fun to talk with you. If you'd like to learn more about Mary Roach and her new book, Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law, we've got links at our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. While you're there, please do subscribe if you haven't already so you don't miss any of our fabulous conversations. You can also follow us on all the social medias, and if you are feeling especially flush, there is a Patreon page. Each monthly donation helps support the hardworking producers who make this show happen. We love them, but love does not pay rent. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes. And we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgower, and me, Rochelle Saunders.